Every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. census data, East Quillenberry, Ontario is Canada's fastest growing municipality. But how is that growth being managed as it relates to immigration and diversity? Mita Gandhi is an award-winning communications professional with experience in both the federal and municipal sectors. Mita joined the town of East Quillenberry last year, where she is the Director of Communications, Customer Service, and Diversity and Inclusion. Prior to working with East Quillenberry, Mita was the Director of Strategy, Innovation, and Engagement at the City of Richmond Hill. And before moving to municipal government, Mita worked with the federal government for 20 years in various roles. At home, Mita and her husband have a blended family of four grown kids and their dog, Leo. Mita has a bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto, a public relations certificate from Ryerson University, and a diploma in public administration from Western University. Mita, how has your professional career led you to where you are today? When I graduated from university, uh, I graduated at a time where there were no jobs anywhere. It was at the height of the recession in the early 90s. Fortunately, I applied for a post-secondary recruitment program that the federal government had, got through to actually getting a position. I went to a test that I had to write for it, and it was in a high school, and every classroom was filled with people exactly like me writing this test. 
And so I always wonder, I don't even know how I managed to get from that place to a job. So I did. And I was asked to manage employment centers for students. And that started off uh, with one office. And then I was asked to come back and asked to come back. And so I was kind of living in that federal government running employment programs uh, space. My degree was in human resources. And with the federal government, there is huge opportunity to explore different areas. And um, several years later, I fast fast forward, uh, I, I happened to do a little bit of communications work with the director of communications at the time. And I literally knocked on her door and I said, you know, I really like the work that you do. I'm interested in what you do. If there's a position, maybe I could, you know, could I, could you bring me on? This is me having no sense of really what communications was all about, uh, having never really worked with the team, but just sort of peripherally watching. And she said, well, I don't have anything right now, but, you know, I like working with you and you never know. I turned down another job, decided to stay put. And, um, and then two weeks later, she came to me and said, hey, do you want to join the team? That was a bit of a pivotal moment in my life because I thought, well, if I'm going to do this communications thing, I should go back to school and learn about it. So I did. And I did that part time and ended up getting a certificate in public relations and continued in the public relations space for a very long time. Uh, Worked in the federal government ultimately for 20 years in a lot of different roles, managing communications. I even managed operations for citizenship and immigration for, for, for Toronto and York region. And then decided to move to the municipal space. Uh, a job opportunity opened up for me. Unfortunately, I don't speak French fluently, and that sort of was a limiter in terms of my career growth at the federal government at the time. And so an opportunity op- uh, opened up uh, in communications at the um, now city of Richmond Hill. At the, time, at the time, it was a town as a communications director. And then the world just kept on unfolding. I They asked me to to take on customer service. I took on customer service. Then the portfolio grew later on into economic development and into strategic planning and, you know, major, major initiatives. And, and so I stayed in that space for about seven years. Um, and then October of 2020, 2020, so we were already several months into COVID, I decided to leave. And that was a really hard decision because never in my life have I left a job to not have another job to go to. And when I was in Richmond Hill, I touched a lot of different files, including our employment strategy. And part of that was equity, um, diversity and inclusion. So I started doing some communications work in that. Uh, And then really by happenstance, all kinds of things kind of materialized. I started doing some consulting work. I started teaching and then an opportunity presented itself to work at the town of East Quillenberry. Uh, and so I agreed to sign on as the director of communications, also responsible for customer service, but they also asked me to assume the role for, of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And the equity, diversity, and inclusion piece really resonated for me. East Quillenberry is a much smaller municipality than Richmond Hill. It is about and will always be about 70% green, 80% green, somewhere in that vicinity. There is land there that will never be developed. Um, and so high intensification in certain areas along Young Street, for example, but uh, mostly green. And so that was interesting to me. And I knew that in those intensified areas, the community was growing. Uh, and intuitively, I knew that. I also knew that our building permits were up and all of that. Uh, And then when the 2021 census data was released, uh, East Willenberry was the top of the list of the fastest growing municipalities over 5,000 people uh, in Canada. So that was sort of a 
well, this is an interesting place to be. I'm now in the fastest growing municipality. And that municipality is really changing um, in the way it looks, both from a built up perspective, it's starting to get um, more intensified in certain areas. And the community is different. It used to be not diverse. And uh, even when you look at the staff complement, it wasn't particularly diverse. I'm happy to say that that's changing um, over time. And I have a vested interest in um, in diversity. I uh, am a woman of color, of course. My uh, I have a child who is autistic. I have a child who's gay. I have you know lots of lived and shared experiences. And for me. Finally, I'm at a place in my life where I can actually talk about these things, where I can talk about my own life experiences, because I grew up in a space where we were to not talk about the fact that we were different. We were to blend in. My parents came to Canada in the 60s. Very, very few people uh, in Canada at the time who were East Indian, well, at least in our community. (laughs) And so the best thing to do was to fit in and to deny my culture. And deny my community, uh, not make, not have any East Indian friends, not be, not speak the language, which is a very devastating piece of this. I learned to learn the language uh, and understand it, but not speak it fluently. My brother, who's two years younger than me, doesn't speak a word. Racism was so entrenched in our in our fear uh, that we we wanted to be anything other than. And so, you know, now that I have children who are much older and uh, I want for them and for their world uh, to be a very different place. How did your lived experience or does your lived experience inform how you step into your public role? Well, that's that's an interesting question. You know, one of the things that uh, COVID really underlined for me is when I would walk into, figuratively walk into a Zoom meeting I became abundantly aware of the fact that I was different in almost every setting. When I was in Richmond Hill, when I'm in East Gullenberry, I pay attention to the number of men who are in the room. I pay attention to color. I pay attention to ability level. And often, almost always, uh, I am one of the only persons of color. And I am also, you know, depending on what the subject matter is, sometimes the only woman in the room. What is critical, I think, about that is that I bring a voice that that is that they don't necessarily hear. We live in echo chambers. We're around people who are like us. So when you have somebody like me saying, I don't understand the language that you're using. I use sort of my mom as the litmus test of my mom, whose, whose language is not English is not her first. She speaks English fluently, but English is not her first language. She's not going to understand this. How is the general average resident in our community, particularly uh, because so many people are coming uh, as newcomers to the country and who don't speak English as their first language, how are they going to understand this? So particularly in the areas of things like engagement, you know, if we're going to be doing a, (laughs) I was just before our call, I was looking at this notice where we're going to be doing some revitalization work and and I was looking at the notice and I was like, okay, I'm using that, that filter. Is the language clear? Are people who are receiving this going to understand what we're saying? And it's not only language from a sort of a diversity, you know, from an immigration perspective, but it's also from an ability perspective. I think about my son. He needs information in clear, concise. He's exceptionally bright. 
But if it's like pouring water into a glass and if it's too intense, it just overflows. And I think that we have to be far more um, cognizant of our environment and the people around us. So that's the lens I bring. I'm constantly reflecting on my own intersectionality and, and trying to use that. I will, buy, I will tell anybody in the room, I am not an equity, diversity and inclusion specialist. I am somebody who has lived experience and who is a communication specialist. So I apply that EDI lens to the communication space every single day. So I think that there's a lot of um, folks that live and work in rural communities outside of an urban center, even maybe public administrators. So people who work for a township or a municipality and think that they don't have any leverage because it is archaic and it is ingrained that this is a white community. So I can imagine for those folks as a white privileged female that it's daunting. So having worked in public service for so many years, what would you tell those folks? I would start with having conversations and starting to educate people about things that are happening. And it could be pretty small. It could be, you know, if it is, I'll use my own community, for example, if it is Diwali, I would share. So I do that. When it's Diwali, I tell people, I do a weekly message to my team every Monday morning, like the world would have to be on fire for me to, not to do that. And and I in that, I share usually something about my personal life, about what we did or what's happening with my family. I always say family first. And, and I, so I try to share those experiences with my team. Um, but I would do things like, this week it's Diwali. And this is what we're going to do to celebrate it. I would bring sweets in and share the sweets because that's part of the tradition of Diwali. So I would share the culture and share the experience with people. And 100% of the time, it's it's peaked interest. Oh, so tell me about this. Tell me about the Festival of Lights. Tell me why people are lighting fireworks today. Explain to me, you know, the meaning behind it now, because I really rejected my culture for I would say the first 20 years of my life, I never really learned about the deep rooted meaning or the religious components of these things. I only sort of have embraced it culturally, I would say. So I don't even always have the answers, but I look them up now. I'm more interested and I share, share the information that I have. So I do that. And then I, I also ask questions. So if I'm a person in a municipality and I'm very much a minority um, I might share, I would suggest that people share their own experiences, but they also ask questions of people around them. You know, so tell me how you celebrate Greek Orthodox Easter. Explain to me, you know, what happens, let's say, if somebody happens to be Jewish, what is, explain to me what Passover is about and and why the food restrictions are, or the food um, practices are, are such. I would ask those questions. I would suggest that you you know, the person reveal a little bit about themselves and also invite information uh, so that they become more aware. And it doesn't need to be like in your face. This is stuff that, you know, culture doesn't just, it's not like you turn on a light and all of a sudden, you know, things change. It happens organically and it happens by people starting to open their eyes. So in East Gwilymberry, I established an equity, diversity, and inclusion framework. 
and it has three pillars. Uh, and the three pillars are engage, educate, and express. So what I'm trying to do in the organization, because I am like many, many municipalities out there, I'm like a team of one on the equity, diversity, and inclusion side of things. It's not up to me to be everything equity, diversity, and inclusion in my organization. It's really important for the entire organization to embrace equity, diversity, and inclusion. So I set out a framework that enables the rest of the organization to start to make those small steps. So engage is really about who are we talking to internally and externally? What are those conversations looking like? Who, who are we seeking in terms of getting different points of view? Educate is about having meaningful, uh, intentional education that is available for staff and also to the public. So we have now a Connecting Our Community webpage where we have content about uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We have content about Black History Month. We have content about Pride. And these are literally tiles behind which there are web, there's web content that has all kinds of information that people can go to. And I'm not necessarily creating content net new. I'm drawing from existing content all over the place. And Express is a really important part because that's where policy comes into play. So as a municipality, what choices are you making in terms of public art? What choices are you making in terms of accessibility? How are you planning uh, public events, both from an accessibility perspective, but also the type of public event? Are you doing things that are encouraging people to bring out their own traditions? Every part of the organization has a space in this equity, diversity, and inclusion framework, because there's no way as a person of one, also responsible for communications, also responsible for customer service, that I can deliver that entire, you know, it's not something I can put in a box and say, here you go. And I'm not going to be with the organization forever. You know, other people are going to come into play. They need to start to understand. And what's so rewarding for me is when I hear people talk about Engage Educate Express, like naturally, they're starting to just it's becoming part of their lexicon. It's in their work plans. It's part of what they do. The sprawl, as, as you so aptly mentioned, uh, is happening all over. I mean, anywhere I'm in a municipality that is an offshoot of London. So London's growing and people are moving out. And we need to create the structure and the programs to make this a culturally inviting community and your three pillars i'm curious was there a consultation process did you bring in a consultant did you work with your team to develop it there was a, a, a little bit of a consultation process i think this is sort of like an evergreen uh, piece right i created these three topics i vetted them with we have a diversity and inclusion advisory committee of council so i work with them i worked with our senior management team to suggest these three pillars and you know just sort of testing it to see does it does it capture everything we need and i and i in the end i decided it does just based on the feedback that i was getting you can put pretty much everything into engage educate and express when i presented it to council i originally presented to council just a sort of here's an update and here's a strategy. And it turned out the council decided to endorse it, which is great because then council is saying, we stand behind this. This is something that's meaningful to us. The pieces where there is going to be 
deeper dives and deeper engagement are things like how is it that we are going to, as an organization, approach community engagement? You know, we're going to need to get deeper into that. We're going to need to get deeper into policies we even have in the organization around uh, human resources. And what are we doing? Are we going to, with intent, look at hiring people who are autistic and, and seek support from um, employment services that support people with autism? Like, is that a decision we're going to make? And we're going to have to reach out to that that group, the autism community, perhaps, to see if that's something that works. I mean, this is something that hasn't even been talked about, but I'm just saying that's as an example, there are plenty of opportunities to dive deep into any one of those pillars on any one of those topics. And so, you know, my hope is that this, you know, stays with the organization for a long period of time and that, and that it becomes part of our practice. And that practice also includes the nature of engagement and how we work with the community. I think that community engagement piece is is critical, and I think we're all at a stage where municipalities, I don't want to generalize, but progressive municip- municipalities recognize that it's the right thing to do, and, and it is a progressive thing to do to implement a strategy, but when it comes to community engagement, how does that work? Has anybody gotten it right in in a rural community? You know, is anyone held up as an example of community engagement when it comes to EDI and and implementing those strategies? I'm not sure that we're at that stage yet or anyone's figured out how to do that in a we're white privileged, we need you way, right? In fairness... I don't think anybody talked about these topics even five years ago. Fair. Yep. So, you know, we are certainly elevating the discussion. There is among municipalities, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, groups of staff, like um, professionally, mm-hmm. you know, who are constantly asking questions and, and, and diving deep. One of the things that I find when it comes to engagement is that sometimes the go-to answer is, well, we'll just create a web page and we're going to, that's, that's going to be the engagement piece. And one of the gaps that I find pretty much anywhere is that we are not treating engagement as a profession and that it, it gets added on to, you know, somebody's job responsibility. And I think that there is enough need to, really dive deep, you know, go to the International Association for Public Participation and get accredited. There's a whole program and practice associated with public engagement. And so I haven't implemented this in in East Gwillimbury, but I think what needs to happen is there needs to be sort of a level setting of what is engagement? What tools do I use? You know, what practice, what am I trying to get out of it? Um, how is this going is, are we looking for input that's going to influence policy or do we just need to inform people? These are the kinds of things that we need to actually actively ask. And I've seen so many examples where engagement gets added onto somebody else's job title. They don't go for the certification. They don't get the education in what it is to what the, the spectrum of public participation is. And then you add a diversity lens on top of that, it even makes it more uh, robust. And so that is a gap that I see in uh, everywhere. 
I think until we get to that place and we start to fill those gaps and we get people with the appropriate qualifications and education and experience to be practitioners and be recognized as practitioners in their municipalities, until then, we're going to, I think we're going to be doing a little bit of hamster wheeling, you know, like we're, we're constantly going to be asking these questions until we start to bring in the right people who do that. Now there's certainly consultants out there who know how to do this and do this exceptionally well. And that's very valuable. I agree with the hamster wheel um, because I think the conversations currently are around, okay, we're a municipality and we want to be more inclusive. How do we do that? What's the strategy or do we need to do that? Because we don't have a lot of diverse people, right? It's the chicken before the egg. So they think, well, we don't have a very diverse community. So why do we need that? And instead of preparing strategy now to become a more inviting, inclusive, safe community for diverse people of any, you know, any racialized or marginalized people. Yes. I think we're a long way off. Yeah, no, I think it's going to take some time. I don't, I think that unless you do, you work with intention. Let's say a municipality wants to grow. So our birth rates are never going to make up the population that we need in our in our country. We need to have immigration. And so unless you actively demonstrate that you're a diverse community and that you welcome diversity, you know, if you have a choice, if I put myself in my parents' shoes, you know, and they were coming to Canada and I had a choice of moving to some place that I was going to be completely shunned or moving to some place where I can sort of, sort of somewhat be accepted. I'll go to the place where I can sort of somewhat be accepted. What keeps you up at night? What troubles you? From a sort of professional perspective, there's so much work to be done. And I always yeah. feel like I'm never doing enough. We're trying to figure out how we're going to celebrate and support Pride Month, for example. You know, and how are we going to do that? What are we going to do internally in the organization? What are we going to do externally? How are we going to really represent and be seen as as a as an organization and as a community that welcomes diversity from a pride perspective? And because I'm not an expert, we have to make sure we hire people who are really open to this and who are welcoming and who want to see that kind of change. If there's one saying I can't stand, it's the, well, we've always done it this way, which I've heard so many times in my 30 years in public service, beating down that door, that barrier, because it's such a limiter. Well, let's end on a, a more positive note. What What is your proudest moment? And you can, you can say professional or personal. What's your What's been your proudest moment? For me, family first. I have a blended family of four incredible children, my husband and our dog, and I'm super, super proud of them. And proud of the fact that they are who they are unapologetically, each one of them. They don't deny their culture. They don't deny their sexuality. They don't deny their varying levels of ability. They are who they are. And I'm super proud of the fact that that's the family that my husband and I are, are raising. Professionally, you know, leaving Richmond Hill was a really hard thing for me to do. And I'm proud that I did it because it opened up so many doors. It allowed me to really explore areas of my interest that I didn't even realize how passionate I was about it until I was in it. And so I'm proud I opened up my eyes to the ability of doing various things. I also, um, I'm on the board of directors for a women's shelter 
that matters uh, to me because of my own family experience with domestic violence. It's devastating. And so had I kept myself in that box, I wouldn't have discovered this absolutely incredible world and been able to have opportunities like I have today in, in meeting with you. Mita, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. It really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by Imagine a Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are... Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 